Welcome, everyone, uh, back to the Robert Grunwald uh, podcast. We've got a very interesting guest today in Don Pongrace. Uh, Don is a partner at the law firm of Aiken Gump, and you may be wondering uh, how is a big-time lawyer an entrepreneur, but there's a very interesting story here about a number of entrepreneurial things he's done, including building a business within uh, a large uh, law firm. He is today the partner in charge of the American Indian Law and Policy Practice at Aiken Gump. Uh, welcome, Don. Thank you, Bob. Yeah, we're uh, excited to learn uh, a lot more about what you're doing today, but let's uh, start by going way back to your childhood, if you don't mind. Um, tell the listeners about where you grew up and you know, maybe some of the experiences you had that impact who you are today. Well, uh, grew up in New Hampshire. Uh, had four brothers uh, with no other siblings, so a lot we, of testosterone in that house. There was, uh, as they often say, my poor mother. But uh, we all were born within seven years of one another, and I think that's probably a shaping a, a early experience as you can have. And we uh, did most of our activities uh, together. So as a group, we were a pretty solidly bonded. Uh, group, we could make our own football team, our own baseball <laughs> team, wherever we showed up, we would always be working together. On and that. you were the Yankees, of course, right? Yeah, that's uh, definitely not happening. <laughs> but, uh, and I'm not going to go into the New England accent to prove the point. Uh, after that, I ended up going to a small liberal arts college in Maine, uh, Bates College, and uh, that was an uh, incredibly interesting academic opening kind of an experience and you know as I graduated in 1979 was trying to think about what to do yeah and ended up uh, deciding that my course unlike my brothers who all went in and followed our dad's career in the Air Force all of your brothers went into the Air Force they all went into the Air Force and I went into the Peace Corps really so (laughs) It's You're a, definitely yeah. the black sheep of the family of sorts. It definitely was. Uh, although my dad was always proud of my service, uh, it was always a little difficult for him to understand how I didn't want to fly airplanes. Um, but then I spent three years in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Wow, that's uh, fascinating. Let me, let me ask before you, you tell us that story, just going back to, to Bates College, what did you major in and, and, and you know, why did you choose what you chose? So uh, I majored in uh, European history. Okay. Uh, I chose that uh, in part because uh, we had come from a relatively modest background and I had gone to public school, but public school had afforded me an opportunity through St. Paul's School to go there one summer. They sort of selected a group of students around the state to go to, there. To go to Bates. No, to go to St. Paul's. School. Oh, okay. Gotcha. And uh, while there, uh, I ended up studying modern European history, and it was uh, fascinating to me, something that was well beyond anything I was doing in high school. And so when I got to college, I wanted to continue to pursue it. It ended up being with a focus on Russian history, and the real focus of all that was how do you effectuate change from below or above, and how does that all happen? Because Russian history is replete with essentially that constant experiment. How do you improve Russia? So So. interesting, I was going to ask, how do you get from European history to ending up uh, in the Peace Corps in Africa? But it's that 
uh, looking to make an impact to change the world in, in some way. And a very intellectual concept at the time, which of course at 20 or 21 or 22 is understandable that, okay, well, I'm going to try from below and Peace Corps is a wonderful way to both provide service as my whole family was dedicated to and to test out theories of social change and what kind of role I would play in it in my life. So Peace Corps seemed like a great opportunity. Uh, so you're 21, 22 years old and you get on a plane and you go to the Republic of Congo. Tell us about what that's like, you know, landing uh, in the middle of uh, a continent you probably have no, had never been to before. It was, uh, you know, it, it, the first time I'd ever had an overnight flight. Uh, so flew from Boston to um, Brussels. Uh, and then we spent time at the airport. But then we moved on with the, the transit. And the first place we touched down was Kampala at Entebbe Airport. And we got off the airport there. And it was literally a year, less than a year after the Entebbe raid. Wow. And so the first thing we're facing is this solid wall of, of humidity and heat that is indescribable for anybody who hasn't really been in that environment, especially for somebody from New England. And at the same time, <laughs> this, this pockmarked battleground of an airfield with, uh, scattered with the remnants of planes that had been uh, shot up during the, during the raid. So it was a bit of a shock uh, to begin with. We went on to train in eastern Congo and it was a great experience there. Now, when you say train, what were they training you to do? So there were two things. Uh, you had to get your language skills up to snuff. So we spent six weeks in intensive French immersion study and then six weeks in intensive Swahili study. So I Really? Being, so you learned to speak some Swahili? A lot, actually. Most of the language I ended up speaking there was Swahili. That's fascinating. And then the, other, the entire 12-week period, they were training you in the module of the Peace Corps section that you were in. So I was in public health. And public health there, depending on where you were going, was as rudimentary as, you know, establishing a secondary or tertiary area of, of primary care. So sort of a triage system out in the villages where you'd have somebody trained to recognize certain things and say, okay, this is a problem. We need to take this child or this right. mother. And the focus was on prenatal and uh, preschool uh, health because that's where the biggest uh, rates of mortality and, and so when you're there you mentioned going into the villages were you living in a city what kind of living conditions uh, for those who haven't experienced the Peace Corps experience what what was that like so uh, I lived in a small village it was probably about uh, no more than 600 people it was called Kibututu it was on the road to Uganda so there was always the constant threat of uh, sort of eastern invasion and people felt it, and there were, you know, military men stored uh, st stationed there, and that was as much of a problem as anything. But, uh, you know, you very rustic in in terms of an accommodation. Uh, it actually had a cement floor and a tin roof, which was unusual. Very but luxurious. <laughs> for there, it was. Uh, the problem with the tin roof is when it rains, and it rains every day, at least twice a day, and rains hard. It sounds like machine gun fire on the top of the roof, but. Uh, uh, no leaks during the entire time I was there, and water washed away, and it was a very fertile plain. I lived up in a, an area of eastern Congo, which now is only known for uh, very uh, crimes against humanity, but the place where I lived was idyllic. It was up on a, 
a plain in between volcanoes uh, that led up to a place called the Mountains of the Moon. And uh, it was gorgeous. It lived up at about 1,500 meters. There were no mosquitoes, uh, lots of snakes, but... <laughs> Uh, no <laughs> I think I'll take water, mosquitoes no over mistake, uh, snakes. But. Yeah, it was, it, it, the mosquitoes can be a lot more deadly, believe it or not. But um, so it was, uh, you know, there was a province that I lived in, uh, in North Kivu, and did public health work there for three years. And Three years, is that a normal Peace I, Corps commitment? I extended, uh, the training was added on, it's normally two, and uh, I added on some time at the end to become a trainer for other volunteers okay. when they came in. Uh, I actually was contemplating staying, believe it or not, and that would have been a real entrepreneur story, and becoming the manager of a local coffee plantation. Really? Yeah, but uh, when they wouldn't pay me in U.S. dollars, I figured I probably didn't want to get trapped with the currency of Congo at the time, which was known as the Zaire. So, so you went there because you wanted to make an impact. You're involved in healthcare. Tell us about, you know, how you felt about that as, as your three-year tenure was coming to an end. Well, I, I think it wasn't even that far far into it. Um, it's interesting. I was traveling. It, 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 it's frustrating, obviously. Right. Everybody wants to, especially Americans, want to see change and see it quickly, right. fix something, go right. on, what's the next task? And so uh, that was not as satisfying as one would like. And... I was trying to think now in other terms. It was six o'clock in the morning. Uh, I was traveling on a on a, a boat that went from one end of Lake Kivu up to the other. It was a six-hour tra- uh, 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 voyage, and the only thing that they actually served was really tall Primus beer. So I'm sitting there, <laughs> You're able to think more clearly. It was great. Yeah. So anyway, I'm sitting there drinking this Primus beer, and I'm thinking, God, you know, what is it about this country? That, that makes it so impossible and so frustrating and what makes things work in America. And, you know, to get intellectual with the concept, it was the difference between the rule of law and the rule of men. There were things right. you could count on because the country is so rich. There's so much that could happen, but there was so much that was unpredictable because you couldn't invest with confidence. You couldn't stay right. and uh, build a life even if you wanted to. And, you know, people were constantly, you know, having to adapt and change. And so there was no real basis for making it work. The only stable institution was the Catholic Church, to be honest, and still is. So uh, I said, well, the rule of law, that's it. That's the way to do this. Um, I'm going to apply to law school. Okay. Which was a challenging thing. But mail was, uh, I wouldn't call it slow, it was... Oh, applying, so you decided to apply to law school while you were in the Congo. I did, yeah. <laughs> uh, kind of limited the choices that I had because uh, if they didn't send the application airmail, I didn't get it until after I was, literally, I was, I got two applications uh, to fill in the day that I was leaving Congo. So those had arrived surface mail and I had applied to get the applications 15 months before. Right. So. Things were a little slow in terms of the mail delivery system. So there were three schools, uh, one in Boston, one in Washington, and one in, uh, and one in Chicago, believe it or not, who all sent me an application airmail. Right. Uh, I filled those in, sent them in, and uh, I had already taken the LSAT before I left, um, sort of on a lark, and uh, had done well enough to make an application anyway, so... Uh, got accepted to all three, 
and couldn't see myself living close enough to home with a law degree, so I didn't go to Boston. Right. And uh, Chicago, I had never been to and couldn't think ever living in Chicago. And all my friends are Chicago going to seems so foreign after spending three years in Congo. Well, <laughs> it, it, it certainly seemed a lot different. I was the only white person in a province of 250,000 people. So right. I'm very comfortable with racially diverse circumstances, right. I can tell you that. But uh, anyway, uh, ended up in Washington and went to law school there. So, so the idea was to go to law school and... Uh, was you thought to transfer those skills back to Africa to help, uh, you know, emerging countries establish a rule of law better? Or it, you know, there was no there was no clear path to that because right. there wasn't any clear explanation about what an international lawyer would be. Right. And so it's a you know often a source of confusion for all those students that do go to law school and think, well, I want to be an international lawyer, but there really isn't uh, an easily identifiable career track for that. Uh, especially for the type that I wanted to do. I did want to very definitely go back to Africa uh, and work on how to develop either infrastructure or systems right. or work in development programs that would actually work. And I thought this was a good way to have some pathway to having a bigger uh, scope for change than I had uh, at the grassroots level. So still intellectually oriented and thinking, you know, I've tried here, and I understand what needs to be done, and right. what doesn't work. Now I'm going to try to figure out how to get something that will amplify my efforts to a degree that will be more satisfying for me. Because right. some people were very satisfied and stayed in Peace Corps, and still are. I have great friends who are still in Peace Corps, and uh, working in administration and doing great work. I wanted to see if there was a bigger field of plane I could work on and make a bigger degree of change. So that was the concept, you know. Law school is not really designed to do anything except to really change your entire thinking about everything uh, in mostly good ways, uh, and they're certainly well-intentioned. So you, you go to law school, you graduate, and uh, where did you go to work right out of law school? So interestingly, I, uh, you know, of course, I had no money, uh, so I ended up working during the summer at a law firm downtown. Uh, this is downtown Washington, D.C. Downtown Washington. So I worked this summer uh, of my second year in Washington, D.C. At, at Aiken Gum. But the first job I had was as a clerk uh, to a judge in the federal system at the appellate level, the Fourth Circuit. And so I went to Abingdon, Virginia. Okay. Um, and the uh, first time I'd ever lived south of the Mason-Dixon line. So that was a big... Another cultural... Uh... Cultural change. <laughs> yeah, but I was able to make that work. And um, it's a great judge to work for. A lot more conservative than I knew when I applied. But, um, And so I worked on that for a year. I had a job lined up after that. I was going to go back to work for the, in the government. But uh, the people at Aiken Gump uh, had liked working with me. I had worked on a few public policy projects there. And uh, they contacted me out of the blue and said, no, 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 you shouldn't go into the government. And, of course, they must have known or figured out who I was. And they said, what you want to do, if you go in now, you'll be at level, you know, Z forever. If you come and work with us in two years, you'll be able to go to work at some much higher administration post or in the Congress, and life will be great. So your thought was get a law degree and then go to work for the government where you could then have an impact um, in, in, through uh, government support in these countries, government programs, et cetera, et cetera. It was still an idea that, and, and I still, to a degree, you know, uh, believe in it, that 
government can do good things right. um, when they're directed by people that are wanting to do good. And most people that I've met in the federal government uh, and to a large degree in state government do want to do good things. Uh, a lot of people are just filling the, the, the space, but that's part of the job, what happens everywhere. But um, that was the concept, was to still try to find a way to do good and do well enough to have a career. Right. And, uh, you know, I went to work for Aiken Gump uh, in their public law and policy uh, shop and uh, was a, I'd never been on Capitol Hill before, even though I lived in Washington for three years. I didn't really even know that there was a House and Senate side to the Hill. <laughs> um, I, I, I was shocked when I went up there and I said, well, which, the guy goes, which side of the Hill do you want to go to? I said, well, I want to go to the Hill. <laughs> and, uh, so it was kind of a interesting. The first client I took into a hearing uh, was a, a, a jeans manufacturer, I'll put it that way. And uh, we were getting ready to walk into the, the, the wrong house office building for testimony. He goes, uh, Don, I've done this a couple of times, and that's not the place. We're, we're supposed going. to be on the other side. We're going over to Longworth. I think that's a better place. And I said, yeah, I knew that. I was going to go up and around. So, so you're working at a big law firm. And um, you, you, your desire is to impact the world. But look, the reality is big law firms, you also need to make some money for your partners. Otherwise, you're not going to be there very long. So tell us about how you thought about the balance between, um, you know, working within this big law firm context, but at the same time, um, you know, maybe how you how you focused on your, your career, the clients that you've chosen, in order to uh, begin to uh, pursue the, the 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 things that you're so passionate about. So the 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 firm was very good about living up to their commitment. They said, "Look, come to work for us for two years. We'll get you a job that you'll be satisfied with." And so they began helping me look for that. Um, and there were some uh, appropriate slots that did open up and. They're very helpful. I was granted the, the opportunity to both to interview for it and had the job lined up, and then the, the, the job itself shut down because the member moved on. But uh, So at the end of that, it was like two years in, uh, I ended up uh, exploring other options. I had a friend who actually had uh, a real law firm based in Congo and in Africa, and explored that route. Of that would have been fascinating. A different career life. I actually ended up recruiting him back when uh, when I did get out to, to Brussels, which is where this story sort of leads to next. So I'm sitting there and I was close friends uh, with the chairman of the firm and uh, he invites me to go out for a beer and he goes, so what's up with you? And I'm going, well, you know, I'm just not that happy. I, I, I need something different. This isn't doing it for me. So right. well, we're opening an office in Brussels we don't want you to leave. Remember, I was only a second, third-year associate by then, but I'm, so, of course, my own head was filled with visions of, of much greater importance than that. But he goes, how about if you uh, go out there, check it out, and if we need to transfer someone there, uh, but we're not going to put a partner out there, so if it fits for you, since you were in Congo, you speak French, it was Belgian colony, right. this would be a good fit. So uh, I go out, I go home, and uh, mentioned to my wife, Olin, I said, you know, we just literally got married. And she, I said, well, you know, I don't know. Do you think this really fits? She just got a promotion. Right. She was on a great career track herself in uh, public relations. And it's like, would you want to go overseas? She goes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> She's so, an adventurous woman. Yeah. 
So uh, I, I head out. It was a very complicated thing uh, that the firm had done. They had sort of uh, worked with two people who became partners, but the firms had not merged because Belgium's a very complicated place. So it was there where I really began to look at the mechanics of how both law firms work to make money and how the integration into the local bars and cultural and really bar rules work. And right. it was very complicated and difficult. When I got there, there was about maybe 11 lawyers and the one American associate and all the work product I had to, because what we were doing then was just integrating the entire American client base to the degree it was there into the offer. Uh, the so office. you were helping American clients with... Um, efforts that they were undertaking in Europe. And it was literally right around the time of the 1992 program. So I'm there in 19, 1989, 90, 91, leading up to the, you know, the fall of the wall. We were there doing all kinds of very interesting periods in European history. And, you know, you also had, you know, the expansion of the, of the entire EU with the inclusion of new members. So there was a constant shift and growth and difference. And it was a very exciting time. Uh, when we went through it, uh, my wife got a job in the European institutions because she's Irish, and so she was working for the European Commission. And uh, you know, I was essentially managing all the U.S. client base that was there, and it was a massive sort of influx that came in. Um, you know, we ended up with a recruitment pattern which I found uh, interesting. I ended up essentially because of my job at Pivot Point, and then essentially the leadership in in the office. Right. So, um, I'm there for about 18 months, and um, I get a phone call from the chairman, and he goes, well, I have good news and bad news. <laughs> and I said, well, uh, you know... A question my, you're always uh, anxious yeah, to hear yeah, the yeah, uh, answers to. He says, uh, you know, the management committee decided today that they're going to make you a partner. So... Uh, this was, was at a very young age. It was. It was. I caught up with my age uh, uh, group uh, because I had been out with the hiatus and peace school. Right. So, yeah, they jumped me to being a partner about uh, four years into the track. And um, he says, uh, the bad news, I said, well, that's, that's great news. He says, well, the bad news is we're really not going to pay you a lot more money. <laughs> and you're going to have to run the office. And uh, I said, well, you know, I'm pretty much doing that anyway. He says, yeah, we were getting tired of actually calling you the managing associate. So right. I got the managing partner title in the next three years. So this is, you know, this is uh, not the beginning. I mean, you the Peace Corps was an incredibly entrepreneurial thing. But in this big law firm, you created an opportunity for yourself um, to, to build a business within a business. Um, so you were the, the creator of the Brussels European branch of, of this uh, it, Washington, D.C.-based law firm. And it was literally sort of an entrepreneurial, you know, what kinds of skills do we need to have? How do we create a value proposition? How do we make sure that we're delivering on that with high-quality people? The person who was recruiting me uh, to the Congo office moved himself to Brussels, so I recruited him to become the head of our, our uh, corporate practice right. there, and uh, the office took off. We ended up, when I finally did leave, it was after uh, our first daughter was born, our second daughter was on the way, and we both decided that we didn't really want to be expats. Right. And that was a real career choice, so it was a pivot point there. Uh, but the, the office had grown from, you know, 11 lawyers to who were, you know, sort of integrated but not to a fully integrated unit. We had changed corporate structure twice uh, in order to meet the bar requirements, and we had almost 45 
lawyers in the office. What was the, what was the can you recall a, a particular moment of, of great angst or anxiety or, you know, an event that, that occurred that seems like so many entrepreneurs have to fight through a, 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 a challenge that arises? Can you, can you recall a particular poignant challenge that you might have had uh, were, in building there, that business? There were. Uh, it was really the, the cultural clash between the different legal cultures. Right. You know, the, the, the strong profit-driven, uh, hourly-focused um, culture that's an American law firm. Very high quality, you know, there and available at any time. Sort of clashing with a much... Uh, a much more relaxed, very uh, professionally oriented, and and sort of almost aristocratic culture uh, of the Belgium of lawyers the Belgium of the, bar, of the yeah. European lawyers. And right. so the the two partners that uh, we had started with, uh, who had formed the basis of the partnership that we built there, uh, both at different periods ended up leaving. One interesting. Was, one was Latin. One was asked to leave, and that was a thing that I had to carry forward on at a very young age. He was a very substantially established member of the bar, uh, an aristocrat himself. And I had to walk in and basically say, you know, it, it really hasn't worked out, Philippe. We're going to have to... That's a hard a thing to do for at, anyone, right? Yeah, I was 30, 31, and uh, it was a difficult thing to do. And and then negotiating that was a very traumatic thing to go through at first time I was sort of going through that process. And then the other one was unexpected. And uh, we had to deal with the response to it and how do you deal with that. So there's a lot of crisis management in those types of experiences. But in general, you know, it was, it was such a go-go time in Europe that the, the beauty of being there at that time was you couldn't really make a huge strategic mistake. You could make a mistake, but there was always another opportunity behind it. And so you'd learn from that and figure out how to adjust redefine what the value proposition is or redefine who the team's going to be or how the client service is going to be there. And there was a lot of adjustment that you could do because there was so much uh, opportunity. It's right. changed, obviously. Uh, but at the time, because of the wall and the single market program right. and the expansion of the EU and the integration of the economies, which really rapidly accelerated at that point, it's hard to miss opportunities. So it's, it's fascinating because it seems to me that your um, experience in the Peace Corps of being thrown into a very different culture was probably so valuable to you in ending up in Europe with these, this clash of cultures that may have been one of the more important skills, maybe as important as your legal skills, uh, to your success in Brussels. <laughs> it was. And, and over time, it's the same pattern of, of both recruitment and training and uh, team building that, that I've used each time that I've, I've gone on to other things within the firm. I left uh, reluctantly. The, when I got on the plane and we were with uh, our daughter and, and, and my wife, we were flying back and I'm going, wow, this could be the last time I'm flying to Europe for a long time. Uh, but, you know, we got there, we settled into the Washington office again. Um, I moved into the international group at the time. Okay. But there was, you know, literally I was the first returning partner in the law firm. They'd never had a partner go overseas and come back. And we so enter. Right. There, was abs there was no program. There was no understanding. It was like, they, you know, people were saying, well, you know, got to work. Okay, right. they, they, let me know if I can help. Right. <laughs> it was like, which, so I had to rebuild an entire practice there. And 
uh, sort of figuring out what were the, the major, again, skill sets, value proposition you can bring to the table. So I ended up developing an internationally oriented uh, sort of political transaction practice, one where a U.S. company was trying to or was doing business in a foreign jurisdiction and had run into political problems with the government because okay. one of the things that you you learn at the time there was only 12 members of the European Union but uh, the 13th member was always the United States and right. so one of the key things for any problem in business that you learned there was the interaction between government and business there is very deep and direct and it's true across the, the globe and so using the the appropriate influence or opportunity of U.S. government pressure in different areas was right. part of what the keys to the, the the training that I had developed there. So taking that, I said, well, there's a value proposition there. How do I put that to use? And I went to work for some major U.S. drug companies who often are running into issues of debarment or, you know, uh, exclusion or other issues and did a lot of work in Mexico for them. So what what you're touching on is um, is sort of a little bit of your role in lobbying for these companies. Is that a fair yeah, description? I mean, it is. I mean, um, you know, I, 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 I don't avoid the term lobbying, but I find it uh, uh, sort of a constrained definition of what it is. The advocacy that goes on is simply the form of advocacy that's uh, that's best suited from what our firm does, which right. is advocacy with a legal, you know, tinge or completely. You know, we analyze the problem and then figure out how to fit that into the forum. And right. so, the advocacy there in in Mexico or Brazil or China or Korea, which were the major places I I worked um, and developed a, a fairly considerable practice in doing it was really bringing to bear the legal the legal element to it and then understanding how the U.S. government itself operates, how it interacts with the foreign government, and then choosing the route into the foreign government. Is it direct? Is it through the U.S. government? Right. Is, you know, how do you best get to the so, message that needs to be delivered? But so many of our listeners, you know, myself included, I, I hate to say to some extent, you hear the term lobby, even you wanted to avoid it to some extent. It has this negative connotation of big money, uh, negatively influencing the government. But for the benefit of our listeners, maybe you can pick a, a really specific issue that you've dealt with in your career and, and give us an example of, of how it, it helps, uh, how it can, it can be a, a source of good. Well, uh, a, the easiest one in the international context, I, I do quite a lot of that now in, in, in a different area, but um, right in, in the international context, a, a U.S. drug company that had major subsidiaries located in Mexico had had a foreign corruption issue and been debarred. And okay. it was a $100 million hit on the company. And the company uh, addressed the problem, wanted to rectify the, the circumstances, but politically was being uh, blocked from doing anything about it. And so we uh, determined, you know, we analyzed the problem, figured out who we needed to talk to, worked through the other elements on it, found out ways that it was actually a potential violation of U.S.-Mexico uh, NAFTA, uh, obligations and went in and began an advocacy campaign directly with the affected ministers. We eventually solved it by having the CEO come in and it's a very political circumstance and he had right. to come in and he had to apologize. 
and we had the script worked out. We had done all again this. the cultural aspects. It, it it had less to do with the law than understanding Ultimately, the culture. That right? was precisely what it was. And you know, the Mexican attitude was that they were not taking U.S. Uh, Mexican law seriously, and they had to come in and demonstrate that they were. And so the CEO gets on a plane. We have the script worked out. The guy's supposed to go through this thing. It's supposed to be a fifteen-minute meeting. Forty-five minutes into it, the CEO is looking over, going, "Is this ever going to end?" And we eventually solved the problem. Walked out. The the department was ended. They were back in business. The CEO gets on a plane. He says, "That was good, but I'm never doing that again." Uh, so it it. But you helped them work through that problem. Work through again a cultural issue that cultural uh, they issue otherwise that wouldn't have known how to deal with. with. And right. so, uh, and. You know, we developed a, the, the group that I was, had developed and put together. We developed a reputation for being able to solve problems like that. We did, Dow Jones was having a problem with being blocked in China. Um, you know, we had, you know, Miller Brewing Company wanted to do international joint ventures in a very competitive and very nationalistic area in breweries. And so we helped them put together an international group of alliances there. So the, the business aspect of it and the, and the large scale transactional aspect of it was, for me, a big part of the training that I then took into the next phase right. that I had. So I finished with that. My now three children, I never see them because I'm on the road all the time. And, you know, uh, they're seven, you know, five and three. And so I said, well, you know, I've got to stop that. So I abruptly sort of shift back towards uh, a totally different environment. I said, I'm going to work only on domestic issues. Okay. And uh, I moved back into the domestic uh, branch of the policy work, what's called the public law and policy practice, but it's focused primarily on lobbying. And uh, I, I went to work there. And uh, again, with no client base, but a need to develop one, build a new, um, build build another business within a business again. And uh, you know, it's like most stories with entrepreneurs. Sometimes you get very lucky. And uh, I had uh, uh, a family contact from way back that uh, was a general counsel for an Indian tribe, American Indian. And uh, they had a particular problem. It was a straightforward lobbying issue. So all of a sudden, I'm straightforward back up on the hill. I've got to reacquaint myself with all of that and you know, go through that whole mechanism. But we do very well for them for that. And I get a phone call from him, and he says, look, I've got, uh, uh, I like working with you. And I've got a really difficult problem. I've been working on it for years. And the people I'm working with now really aren't making progress, but I think you can this is a problem involving an American Indian tribe. An American Indian tribe. He's a general counsel, um, uh, a really oppressive man, um, became one of my best friends, and uh, it dealt with water. So water okay. rights in the West are a very difficult issue, very political, but very legal. They fit my own skill set and preferences and what the, lo the law firm does and what he had seen us do in the lobbying campaign we had worked for him on the Hill on this a tax issue. And he says, I'd like you to take this over, and and I want to move this forward and finish it. So, so can you take take a moment and maybe describe the issue in a little bit more detail? So uh, when a tribe has a reservation established by federal law, okay. by treaty or by a, a executive order, the reservation reserves for the tribe enough water for them to be able to have an existence on this plot of land. Okay, for them to be able to survive. Right, it's called reserved water rights. Okay. And every federal reservation out there, the American Indians, military reservations, they all have reserved rights. And they're established and they're essentially, uh, they trump any other rights in the area. 
and they're uh, depending set up at the date of the executive order or otherwise so they're usually very um, very uh, high priority in rights and on top of that tribes also have other claims just if they used to live there right and what happened in the West was you know people would move out and they would begin to use the water and eventually the water that was reserved for the tribes would go away so that's happened across the West this particular tribe had a massive entitlement to water because the name of the tribe it's a matter of public record is the Gila River Indian community uh, in their own language, they're called the Akamalatham, and the Akamalatham means people of the river. So they had. This, so they want their river. They want the river back, and uh, and that's the whole por- uh, point of this whole negotiation. So did the river? I mean, just to try and visualize this, I mean, <clears throat> development. This Indian tribe is in the Phoenix area. D- did development basically block the river off over time, or uh, upstream water users okay. uh, essentially pump the river dry? Okay. And so there wasn't any water coming down anymore. It was a, a free-flowing stream. It became what's called an intermittent stream. Uh, and in Phoenix, was, that's a big deal. <laughs> it was huge. And so the tribe went from being the most prosperous group in the area. I mean, they literally fed the original colony of white settlers there. Um, it was like the breadbasket on the Gila River, just south of where Phoenix actually grew up. And uh, they went from being the most prosperous, prosperous farmers in the area to being impoverished and eating, you know, the nuts from mesquite trees and uh, believing that's not a great existence. And so they uh, they literally had a fall from uh, in, into economic ruin that continued for, for decades. It began to build back a bit. And then in the 90s, when we got hired, uh, they had a really dynamic general counsel. Uh, and... He really wanted to fix this problem. They had been negotiating on it since 1935. And negotiating uh, with the federal government. Is that, it's, the, the problem is, is everybody in the area right. because the water entitlement that they have now and that they were negotiating for affects the entire state right. because it's that large. And so the federal government was involved, the state government was involved, all the major water providers were involved, all the cities were involved. And you ultimately sued... The federal government? Is that uh, well, you, the right way to describe it? What you, what you do to start something like this is to file a claim for water rights. There's like an, what's called a general stream adjudication. So you file that and you say, here's the amount of water we have. Right. And the U.S. government usually files with you, and they did. Um, we filed for 2.1 million acre feet. They filed for 1.8 million acre feet on our behalf. And uh, that's a lot of water. Uh, an acre foot is one foot of water over an entire acre, about 350,000 acre, uh, 350,000 Sounds like you became a little bit of a water engineer in the course of uh, this battle. There's a lot to learn, and I didn't know any of this obviously going into it, so again, it's a brand new sort of entrepreneurial element to it, and, um, you know, scoping out the nature of the problem, what needed to be done, how to attack it, developing the strategy to be able to do it. We worked very, very closely, and we ended up having a settlement agreement that encompassed 43 separate major parties. Um, and uh, because it's a federal entitlement for a tribe, it can't be effective unless it's approved both by Congress and by this court where you right. filed the claim. And we actually had two courts we had to deal with it. So this is a massive undertaking. We did it over seven years and finally got that approved by Congress. It's the largest settlement uh, in U.S. history. So a seven-year battle to give them back their river, essentially. So when they're done, uh, 
is the river flowing again? So it's interesting uh, that you mentioned that. No, it wasn't, um, because the principle in, in American water settlements is that if the water's been taken, you don't take it from the taker. Okay. They get to keep it, and you find an alternate source of okay. water. So it led us to a massive entitlement from an alternate source, which at the time was plentiful, the Colorado River. So we were, the Colorado River actually runs into the Gila River, and the Gila River is the fourth longest uh, stream in the world. So it runs across two states and into the Colorado River. And uh, so we ended up with an entitlement that, that brings water through the Central Arizona Project to the reservation uh, or other uses. So you use the term entitlement for, so um, what did this mean to, to the Indian tribe in dollars and cents, if, if that's uh, well, not it, too crass a way to put it? Your seven-year battle helped to create what type of economic impact for, it's, for them? It's over time, and of course it didn't happen right away, it's, it's probably a $2.5 to $3 billion value. Wow. Uh, for the tribe in getting it. But, of course, finding a way to, to distill that value out, monetize it, was, was part of the challenge we've been facing since then. So what ended up happening, what turned uh, from a project to launch a practice, turned right. into an actual practice area. And uh, we ended up working with this one tribe and then several other tribes on very unique projects. Again, all with the value proposition that especially for tribes, and it's unique, this niche relies so much on the skill sets that I had developed over the entire career that uh, because it's interjurisdictional, it's intergovernmental, and it's legal. And that's Indian law all over. So um, I then uh, made an actual conscious decision at the beginning of uh, this century, now a long time ago, uh, that I would build a practice in this area. Right. And that, because what I had seen, and this now goes back way to the roots with the Peace Corps part of it, was that I now saw a place where people who were essentially never in the halls of, I mean, I've been working in this area for almost 20 years. You would never see an American Indian in the halls of Congress. Or they, they didn't know how to access no. the, the powers of the federal government or, or to lobby uh, for not, their... Certainly not effectively. Right. And so, you know, you had um, a group that was in dire need of this. And uh, again, looking back to both the trust relationship that you had to build in Peace Corps and then the trust relationship you had to build in Brussels, the whole goal here was to find a way as a white person to try to create a team of people that would demonstrate a value proposition that could get, get it done. And so I ended up, I said, well, what I will do is hire people that look just like the guy who I've been working with as a general counsel, but younger, and I'll build uh, the best group in a major law firm uh, of American Indian lawyers who are all dedicated to the same proposition of helping their own tribes or other tribes. So unique and it, it, it it seems like such a refined niche. We, we often talk when you build a business, find a, uh, a niche that, uh, that hasn't been addressed. And you know, as we said at, at the beginning of this, introducing you, the partner in charge of the American Indian Law and Policy Practice, that's, that probably didn't exist uh, in no. major law firms uh, 20 years ago. No, there's, there's a few that do now. We have a group that's well established within the firm, but it's been a long sort of journey to get to that. We have 10 professionals uh, now. And, uh, and essentially, it's uh, one of the major practices within the policy practice. 
it was major enough that I ended up running the entire policy practice for, for five years and built that into being the first number one. We moved to the number one slot on that and when I was there. And, you know, I moved to the management committee and then essentially I moved back off of both of those by time, you know, the, the expiration of terms. Uh, they have uh, term limits for that. So I moved right. off. And I'm focused entirely on now trying to make sure that the value proposition that's there isn't all dependent on on what I do. Right. And so right. the institutionalization of the practice so it can continue now is the next challenge. It's right. like, how do you get your second generation of right. leadership you've, you've got to develop. and make it work right. Right. and still have it dedicated to the same kinds of issues that and, and causes that you wanted to deal with. So it's been, you know, we've done... The two largest Indian water rights settlements in U.S. history. We've done. We're about to sign a, a drought contingency plan for the entire seven basin states. That's on on Monday of this week coming up. Uh, that the our our own client now is essentially one of the most influential voices right. for policy on the Colorado River, which affects forty million people. So, I've I've been able to uh, have an impact with them. Uh, move them to a voice and a position that they should have and uh, help them along the way with other entrepreneurial elements that they, they do. So they have a, uh, a five-star resort that they put in right. on their reservation, the mainstream feature of which is a return of the Gila River. So right. going back to right. the point that you made at the river come back, it didn't come back in its natural flows, not yet, but the next project that we have is to try to work on how to Retrench right. the upstream farming right. to the point where stream flows do actually come on. So it's fascinating. I mean, again, we began this conversation with uh, you heading off to uh, the Congo to work in the Peace Corps to try and change the world. Uh, you end up going to work for a big law firm. Uh, you develop these entrepreneurial skills, building a business in Belgium, building an international practice uh, back in the U.S., and then ultimately, you're having this amazing impact on American Indians and on, on the lives of American Indians living on reservations by uh, helping to make sure that their rights uh, are, are addressed. Um, uh, it's really an incredible story. And I know there's a lot more to talk about, and, and I look forward to, to uh, continuing this conversation. Uh, but for, uh, for today, I'd love to wrap up by asking folks, for the benefit of our listeners, Mm-hmm. Um, to recommend uh, one book, uh, maybe there's a couple, but if there's one book that really looms large in your mind that you would recommend to our listeners to uh, to consider re- reading, I'd love to get that recommendation. So I actually am reading a book now um, that uh, gives you an idea of what happens with tribes or did happen with tribes when they came to great wealth with with little support or benefit. It's called Killers of the Flower Moon. Killers of the Flower and it flower moon flower it's moon about the osage indians uh in oklahoma and what happened to them in the early parts of the 19 of the 20th century uh with the discovery of oil underneath their reservation and it's a it's a fascinating uh book i just started reading it and uh it it doesn't have a, a broader purpose it's not like vine deloria's custer died for your sins it's right. not that book but that's the book i would recommend Well, great. Thank you, Don. This has been uh, incredibly uh, interesting and really appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. Thank you, Bob.